Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week, we're talking about American contemporary opera, Eric, because there's a lot of it. Boy, howdy. <laughs> there is a lot of it. There are operas being premiered throughout the United States all the time, every season, uh, which is an exciting prospect because that hasn't been the case always. Uh, in the 20th century, not so much. But uh, with a couple of, of notable companies leading the vanguard, it's become an imperative, I think, for modern companies to really try to m make a contribution to the standard repertoire and to expand that so that we're not just always placed in the position of having to do Aida, Bohem, and Carmen over and over and over and over and over. So let's talk about some of these contemporary American operas that have made it into the standard repertoire. And perhaps, you know, we can go back to as early as 1951 with um, Amal and the Night Visitors, for example, by right. Giancarlo Manotti. Which was not even written for the stage. It was written for a television broadcast, a live television broadcast, and has since been adapted to the stage. And it has really become... Uh, a part of the standard repertoire because it's very easy to produce. The, the vocal parts are written very kindly for the voice so that uh, students can sing it. Even churches can put it on. Uh, because it does Christmas have time. a religious theme. Very much so. It's the, the uh, arrival of the three kings after the birth of Christ. Exactly. Right. Obviously, we have then... Later in the, in the 1950s, 1952, Leonard Bernstein and Trouble in Tahiti, a one act. Right, right. Which he then incorporated into his 1983 opera, A Quiet Place. Exactly. And that was, I th it, it seems like Bernstein was, he was kind of like Jacques Offenbach before him. He was a composer who, who wanted to be known for something serious, you know, and, and do really, you know, grand opera and not just be known for. West Side Story and On the Town and his Broadway scores, which is unfortunate because they're masterpieces in and of themselves. And of course he's got Condide. Candide. Right, right. <laughs> which is based on Voltaire's Candide. Exactly. 1956, Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. Yeah. That's a, that's a real landmark uh, opera because that one has legitimately made it into the standard repertoire well, and again, that's another case where you've got an opera that is very congenially written for voices so that uh, major companies like Chicago and the Met continue to do it, but at the same time, conservatories program it all the time. Uh, universities, college programs can do it because young voices uh, will not wreck themselves you know, on this music. One of the features of American opera in the 20th century is how many of them are operatic adaptations of literary works? Classic American works, oftentimes, as a matter of fact. You think of McTeague by William Balcom, mm -hmm. which is based on the, the Frank Norris novel from 
1899, I believe. I'll go along with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been too long since I studied American Lit in college. 1992 <laughs> is when it debuted. And it's a story of a, a, a couple in their courtship and marriage and their subsequent descent into poverty, violence, and finally murder. Yeah, that was uh, that was a novel of uh, from the realism period uh, in American literature, and and uh, other uh, operatic adaptations that sprang from that include um, an American tragedy, which premiered at the Met. That was Tobias Picker, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Tobias Picker debuted at the Met in uh, 2005, and that's based on the. Theodore Dreiser novel. Exactly, which also became uh, the classic American movie A Place in the Sun with Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. When you talk about realism, it makes me think of Verismo. Uh-huh. And, you know, Puccini and Mascagni and Leon Cavallo. Do these types of... Do they have anything in common? Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do, is, is it good fodder for, for opera, that realism? Kind of. I mean, the Italian verismo, I mean, verismo means realism, of course. And uh, the Italian realism school focused on stories that were, well, that were, that were dealing with common folk. But, you know, sort of lurid tales of common folk, you know, who are being driven by their circumstances to commit murder and to do all sorts of awful things. The musical style is something altogether different. It grew from the line of Verdi into Puccini. I, I remember someone once describing Verismo composers as basically taking all of the great movements, uh, the great, you know, big grandiose moments of Verdi and stringing them all together and creating an entire opera out of them, which is a little reductive, but it's not far off. By contrast, the American operas based on the classical American novels of, of realism, the, those composers did not, do not compose in that Verismo style at all. Right. The stories, however, are also about common folk and common folk who are sort of, I remember my American lit teacher in high school basically talking about realism as, uh, you know, these, these, these common folk who are sort of, uh, they're in a crucible, basically. You know, you're taking these, these folks and, and subject them to the most intense stressors uh, imaginable and then watch them <laughs> come, flounder know, flounder <laughs> exactly see how they do yeah it's like it's like an, an you know the the narrator or the author is a as a kid with a magnifying glass you know uh, burning ants on the sidewalk well you look at for example uh, the greats of wrath steinbeck's 1939 novel which was turned into an opera by ricky ian gordon uh -huh. in 2007 right there is a realism there, the uh, American Dust Bowl. Yeah, that's, uh, if I remember my American literature well enough, that's post-realism at that point. It's, uh, there are elements of that that led into that, that, that movement, but it's, I think you're more into the naturalism uh, stage of literature at that point. But yes, I mean, these are dirt-poor folk who are driven to tremendously difficult circumstances by, by life and by their environment. And in fact, there are many of these great American novels that have uh, have been turned into operas. For example, Mark Adamo's Little Women. Which has been very successful, again, uh, because very 
skillfully written for the voice so that all kinds of voices can do it, not just professional voices, but student voices. Uh, will not hurt themselves <laughs> when doing it. Well, because that, I mean, that's a very big consideration for conservatories. You do not want to program for a, a, a college student. You don't want to have them try to sing Aida. They will kill their voices. They will wreck them, and they will be done before they even leave and graduate university. You can't do that. You have to uh, program a lot of Mozart, uh, maybe some Rossini and some bel canto, Maybe French lyric, you know, things like Mark Adamo's Little Women is a, is a perfect uh, opera for for somebody in a university. So it, therefore, it becomes successful through that route. Then we have Moby Dick, ah. the the classic Herman Melville novel that was turned into an opera by uh, Jake Heggie, with a libretto by Gene Shear, and it debuted in two thousand ten, very recent. Premiered in Dallas, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Yes, in two thousand ten. Another great American novel that has made its way onto the stage. Um, what is interesting as well is that there are also some plays that have found themselves with an operatic treatment. For, For example, instance. <laughs> Ghosts of Versailles by John Carigliano. Right. Based on the third of Beaumarchais' Figaro comedies, the first being The Barber of Seville, the second being The Marriage of Figaro, which were set by Mozart and Rossini, respectively. And so it took a couple centuries before somebody got around to La Mer Coupable. But Coriano did, and then he set a frame story around it uh, involving Beaumarchais himself and uh, the ghost of uh, Marie Antoinette, and it's, it's, it's very complicated, but it's uh, a very entertaining piece. Carigliano said that this is, a, this is grand opera buffa. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. It, it debuted uh, in 1991. And, well, and there's a case where you've got, in this piece, it's so big, it would be difficult for a university to, rev- to do it. And the same is the case with Moby Dick. Plus, in Captain Ahab, you've got a role uh, that was created for or at least was, was first performed by Ben Hepner, a Heldon tenor, uh, since done by J. Hunter Morris, who also you know, sings Siegfried, <laughs> for instance. So this is not a role that you want to give to a student singer. Right. It's, so it's it unlikely, a heavy voice. Very heavy. It's unlikely that we'll see that at a university, but it seems to be uh, gaining traction with, with other opera companies and may have a shot. Another play that has made itself uh, onto the operatic stage is uh, Andre Previn's Brief Encounter, uh, which debuted in 2009 and is actually based on the, the play Still Life by Noel Coward and also Coward's screenplay for the, the David Lean film Brief Encounter. Right. And Andre Previn also is the composer of A Streetcar Named Desire, which, if I'm not mistaken again, was premiered in San Francisco with Renee Fleming as Blanche Dubois. So not too bad creds there. That's 1995, A Streetcar Named Desire. So we've seen all these literary adaptations that have lent themselves to an operatic treatment. But there are also, there's, there's another sort of strain in American <laughs> contemporary opera that... I know that, where you're going with this. <laughs> and I've heard you talk about this before. Yeah. CNN operas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the press dubbed it that. 
This, I think, the, the beginning of CNN opera really was the world premiere of Nixon in China here in Houston in 1987. And I was very privileged to be able to work on that production in, in the, an administrative capacity. So I got to see it from inception to finish, start to end. That is one that has succeeded in uh, establishing itself very firmly in the standard repertoire, simply on its own merits as an opera. It, it is done by universities, but it's, it's been done uh, widely all over the world by companies. Uh, at first, there was the Peter Sellers production that was the, the world premiere, and that was done. It was traveled to you know, other companies across the seas in the United States. But then you started seeing little companies like, uh, I think Bielefeld in Germany did one uh, very shortly after the premiere. Uh, and then you started to see uh, productions like Opera Colorado did one and then recorded it and re released that commercially. Uh, and it, so in addition to the world premiere recording with John Adams conducting, you had this one with Marin Alsop conducting. You had the telecast of opening night from Houston back in 1987, and then recently you had the Met Movie Theater simulcast within the last couple of years. So this is just an opera that, just based on its own merits alone, because it's a really wonderful piece of work, has found its, its place in the, in the uh, standard rep. And really it is ripped from the headlines because it's that Absolutely. Richard Nixon's historic trip to China in the 1970s. Right. And, of course, John Adams followed that up with another rip from the headlines opera, The Death of Klinghoffer, based on the Achille Laro tragedy. Uh, and he followed that up with Dr. Atomic, based uh, on the life of, of uh, Robert Oppenheimer. Who and was responsible for the atomic, the atomic bomb. bomb. Exactly. Then, in, you know, in recent years, of course, we've had such really interesting pieces as <laughs> the Jerry Springer of the Opera. Uh, we've had Anna Nicole <laughs> about the uh, about Anna Mark Nicole Anthony Smith. Tenage. Yeah, haven't seen them. Don't uh, don't really know uh, <laughs> much more about them. But well, fortunately, certainly the Anna Nicole is not an American opera. True, that's that's true. But it's uh, actually it's about to be uh, be performed at New York City Opera this next season. So this court of common pleas is now in session. This court of common pleas is now in session. Perhaps blazing the way here in terms of these CNN operas, or if you like, ripped from the headlines, is Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach, 1975. Taking a, a historical figure and using that person as the, the dramatic generator. Right, which he and did. this is obviously Albert Einstein. Yeah, exactly. And he, he did... Um, I don't know if he considered it a trilogy, but there's a trilogy of operas that he wrote that are of that ilk. Ilk. Mm -hmm. uh, Einstein on the Beach. Then there was uh, Satyagraha, based on the life of uh, Gandhi. And finally, uh, Akhenaten, based on the, uh, the Egyptian uh, pharaoh, who actually became, as far as we can tell, I think, I think he was the first monotheist uh, ruler, perhaps even in history. 
And then there is a, a curious one that, that sort of fits into this idea of, of operas based on, on historical figures, true real-life stories, and that is uh, Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking, mm. which is based on the book by Sister Helen, Helen Prejean. Prejean. Mm-hmm. Which then, of course, engendered the, the movie with Susan Sarandon and uh, Sean Penn, which was very successful at the Academy Awards, as I recall. Dead Man Walking! Again, that's another piece that is such a powerful, powerful experience in the theater that it really has fought its way very successfully into into the standard rep. And that debuted in 2000 and was revived 10 years later by Houston Grand Opera, Mm -hmm. 2010. Uh, And had plenty of other other play in between, exactly. Austin Lyric Opera did it, uh, San Francisco, uh, it has really traveled around. And talking of Jake Heggie, he and uh, librettist Gene Shear did The End of the Affair, based on the, the novel by Graham Greene, a British novelist, but an American treatment, a solidly American opera, Jake Heggie and Gene Shear there. So, Eric, when we look at the history of American opera in the second half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. broadly speaking, what do we see? Well, you know, it... it the question I think that we, we need to ask is why do them? And, you know, first and foremost, of course, is the desire to keep opera fresh, to not make it a museum. You know, we don't want the opera house to become a musty old museum where all we do are works that are hundreds years of years old. old. Yes, exactly. So it's that desire to keep freshening the standard rep and keep expanding it and make, it, make opera a living art form, not just a museum piece. There's that. Then, of course, I mean, there's the prestige of doing a world premiere. Everybody wants to do a world premiere if they can, because your audience then be, has the privilege of being the first ever. You know, those of us who saw Nixon in China for the first time ever really feel very privileged at this point. A in part time. of history. Exactly. An important part of history. Uh, so there's that. There's, of course, the international press coverage that you gain from doing a, a, a major world premiere. And it is it is considerable. I will tell you. That's the part I worked on. So it really does gather a, a, an international interest. I mean, c- critics from all over the world will, will descend upon your city if you're doing a world premiere and they will cover you. So there, there are all those things. Plus, you know, it's a really great thing to be able to do a work and not have to guess at what the composer intended. You just turn to him and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> or her. A certain advantage. Or her. So there's that. Why would you not want to do them? Well, it's really expensive. It is a much, much more expensive proposition to do a work that's never been done than to do a revival of an Aida or a Carmen or a Bohème. Because, for example, you've got to pay the composer a commission. You have to commission it, exactly. And then you've got to create the sets. You do. You have to create them from scratch. And you have to. Exactly. And you have to um, teach the score. To all the musicians, fresh, because nobody's seen this thing before. Right. You're not going to get... Uh, it's not like knocking out to Don Giovanni. Yeah. It's not like Don Giovanni where everybody comes in knowing their roles. Cold. What, what I find interesting, though, is when we look at, you know, we, we've identified 
two sort of broad categories uh, mm-hmm. for these contemporary American operas, um, literary adaptations and you know, the, the sort of rip from the headlines. But when you think back to Mozart and Rossini and Donizetti, they were adapting existing stories, plays, novels, etc. themselves. Absolutely. But let me also say that the, the probably the, the biggest reason why you might feel daunted by doing a world premiere is the success rate of operas that are that have their world premieres the success rate of actually making it into the standard repertory it is extremely slow it's a very very high risk proposition right how many and, times and do you see one and done that's right <laughs> there is no guarantee on the outcome exactly american contemporary opera that's this week's opera cheat sheet I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.